I think that there's an emotional component to technical debt, and then there is a measurable technical component to technical debt. Anything that's causing an outage or a session-ending bug or something like that, you can measure it. You can say, this customer saw pain due to the fact that we had technical debt. When you're starting off in an industry, if you're building a new product, you have more tolerance for risk. You're going to ship things quickly. You're going to see if the product feels right. People are making more technical debt, and I think that navigating that world is going to become more and more important. Hi, I'm Liz Fong Jones. And I'm Charity Majors. And you're listening to Observability Cast, a monthly series about the art and science of making production systems observable, easy to maintain, and appropriately reliable. Ollicast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at Ollicast. That's O-11-Y-C-A-S-T, Ollicast. So James, you talk about measuring technical debt. How can teams actually measure such a immeasurable thing? Oh, well, it's difficult because I think that there's an emotional component to technical debt, and then there is a measurable technical component to technical debt. So the emotional component of I don't feel good in this code base, I think is always going to be really tough to measure. You have to probably take more subtle approaches, making sure that you have retrospectives and make sure you're allowing your team, your individual contributors, your managers to share where they're pissed off about things. When it comes to measuring the direct technical impact of technical debt, that's something that I've actually end up talking to people about a lot. So one of the ways to do that is measuring crash rates or stability. Another layer on top of that might be performance impact that's introduced over time. And so we try and look at these measurable aspects as well. Can we measure in this code base, in this application, have we got better or worse in terms of stability? Has the crash rate gone up uh, per release, for example? Or when you turn on this A-B test, has the crash rate gone up in this experiment? And one of the things you can do there is take a look at that number and use it almost as, not necessarily ammo, but almost as a start of a conversation. Right, if you project that outward, it looks really, really bad over time. Exactly. If we're getting five bugs, ten bugs, twenty crashes per week, then you know something's going to be up. I also love what you said about kind of capturing the human aspects, because in my old job at Google, we used to think about how long does it take a new SRE or product developer to get onto the on-call rotation? How confusing is it? This sounds like a good time for you to introduce yourself. Oh yeah, so I'm uh, I'm James Smith. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Bugsnag, and we help companies understand, measure, and improve software stability. So how do we decide how we're allocating our time? How do I decide when is too much technical debt? When should I start doing fixes instead of new features? Yeah, this is a great question and it's almost more of a negotiation point as well. I think that it kind of depends on the size and complexity of your organization. But in almost all... Is it predictable? I think it's predictable, but changes as you grow. I think when you're starting off in an industry, if you're building a new product, you have more tolerance for risk. You're going to ship things quickly. You're going to see if the product feels right. You're going to see if people want to use your product. No one ever failed because they shipped code too slowly. Exactly, exactly. So you'll start off and you'll just get something out there. And I think that it's probably predictable that your health slash technical debt 
So the successful companies will have racked up a lot of technical debt along the way. Is what yes, you're saying. yeah, but I think there's different attitudes that cause things to exponentially get worse versus just happen as part of the yeah, application can, code base getting. You bigger. can imagine two different teams having very different approaches. Like a, a thing that I often see is these early teams are comprised mostly of software engineers, and right. by the time I show up knocking on their door as the first infrastructure engineer, they are doing terrible things to themselves, like sending themselves a hundred emails a day to validate that these. Backups have finished, you know, and I'm just like, what? You know, versus if you actually start out with an ops person from day one, you rack up a very different kind of technical debt. Yeah, it almost feels like um, there's very, very smart people working on these problems that, that let themselves slip into this situation yeah. where there's these non scalable things happening in their inbox. Like, for example, yeah, email alerts that they've triggered themselves manually that no one's ever thought, can we do a better job of this? I think actually. I've seen a lot of the time it comes down to ownership almost. Sometimes yeah. no one's truly owning technical debt or truly owning the observability or monitoring side well, of the it's stack. It's so insidious, right? Like when you have something that's not owned by anyone, then people don't feel like they can fix it, right? It just yes. is a nagging thing that keeps on getting worse and worse. And the best, and actually comes back to your question from a minute ago, I think the best teams that are big, like there's teams now that have massive code bases like Square, where they still give a shit. They actually genuinely care about the quality of the code they're writing. Because you identify with it personally. Exactly. And like and like you say, when you join a company, sometimes there'll be that groan of looking at the here be dragons in the code base. Like, don't touch that file, and that's full of junk. It's always shit where someone used to own it and that person left or moved on or yes. something. Yes, and it's always easy to blame the person who's no longer yeah. there and stuff. And it's just, I don't think it ever is malice in that situation. It's just more like, it happens over time and, and, and you don't have an owner. We take lack of ownership and then we assign some sort of agency to that. Exactly. So... Kind of going back to that question, I think that there's teams that have managed to scale giving a shit. And well, I think in those environments it works. Lots of technical debt is pretty insidious. It's only visible in retrospect. How can frustrated engineers do a better job of surfacing the consequences of this debt to decision makers so they can be allocated real time towards fixing it? This is something that I have a lot of thoughts and feelings mm. on, but I'd like to let you... Yeah, well, I, I have certainly opinions here. <laughs> so the way we think about it, because the, the reason I built Bugsnag in the first place was to address one of... The, this was one of the main problems we Did wanted to try and address. Did it direct pain that you had had? Absolutely, yeah. It was... Um, I've In my former... Previous company, it was a Y Combinator startup, and I was the CTO at that company. And then before then, I worked in Enterprise. And in my YC startup, everything fell on me. If the code quality was bad or I had trouble with engineers being mad at how, how much technical debt there was, that's on me. And so I was like, well, I have to solve this. Whereas at Bloomberg, it was like, tough cheese. Like, There's nothing you can do about this. You have to... I mean, it's a great company in terms of having entrepreneurial spirit there, but there's no way you could justify spending time on fixing technical debt. That's so You kind of weird. have that ever-growing list of features you're supposed to implement, and yeah. your boss doesn't really care. And in fact, as an engineer at that company, I was excited about the new features, so that I was uh, almost convinced that I shouldn't right. be focusing on technical debt. Totally. But yeah, so, so measuring bugs, for lack of a better word, is a really good way to do that, because... If you want to prove that, that or you are... Or paging alerts. Yeah, exactly. Any customer-facing output, anything that's causing uh, yeah, an outage or a session-ending bug or something like that, is, is, you can measure it. You can say, this customer saw pain due to the fact that, that we had technical debt. But that requires you to measure whether your customers are having pain, which seems like its own struggle in and of itself. Yeah, and there's kind of multiple ways to do that as well. Like you're saying, there's there's the, the full outage metric, which is like everything's on fire right now. There's the did a customer see a crash or an exception during a session? Did but they then get even, frustrated and go away because everything was so slow? Performance issues, exactly. Like frozen screens. Actually, we just launched a feature on Bugsnag for Android applications that detect something called ANRs, which is when an Android screen is frozen 
frozen for more than five seconds because we think that that's just as bad as if you've seen a crash in the application. You're probably going to bounce. But then it's almost even worse because then you have to wait there and see is it going to come back or not. Exactly, and probably most customers don't know how to swipe up and kill an application on a phone. So there's the you want to pick some kind of technology or tool that is low instrumentation work but high signal uh, when it comes to that I, kind of stuff. I feel like um, you know, decision makers are always they're trying to do their best, right? And when we are frustrated about what we think are bad decisions being made, it's almost always because they're only seeing a certain set of costs and pain. And they aren't seeing things that are being amortized over longer periods of time or things that are being felt by other teams or things that teams are feeling but they aren't bubbling it back up the ladder so the bosses never hear about yep. it, you know? And this is why I feel like the number one job of any senior person at a company is to look for those things, those critical pains that are not being factored into decisions and amplify them. Yes, yeah. Like look for ways to measure them, to surface them, to speak the language that the business decision makers are speaking. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just a, you know, we're like, oh, we're getting paged all the time and the business leaders don't understand why that's bad or how it's going to cost them. And you just have to keep trying over and over until they get it, right? Yeah. Then you can have confidence in the decision that's being made. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. Companies that aren't good at observability and monitoring and measurement, typically there'll be the highest paid person issue where if you get an email from the CEO saying, why is this not working? Or I've had a key customer saying this isn't working. That's what everyone jumps onto. So that's the same pain as a poor stability rate or or lots of crashes in your application. But one of them is being seen directly observed and one of them is being measured and it's very scientific. And so I think that if you can draw those closer together, that's how you can bring bring this... Data should be democratizing. Exactly. Exactly. A lot of companies will use something like OKRs. Mm-hmm. And if you're running an OKR system, I know Google's a, a, a big big mm-hmm. user of OKRs. Um, but if you're running <laughs> Do you an have OKR feelings, system, Liz? <laughs> well, it's, it's, if it's run well, I think it works well. I think that's probably the uh, my opinion on this. What do you do that's better than OKRs? And what are you even measuring, right? Like that's the important factor. Yes. Is reliability a and code quality a measurement, or is that just a can that you kick down the road, knowing that it's not going to be you who slowed down? Right. One of the really cool ones that I've seen examples of this is uh, poor reviews on the App Store, for example. If you're a mobile application, something's very visible to the marketing team or the CEO or someone who's not writing code is why we're we getting so many one-star reviews. So maybe your OKR is reduce the number of one-star reviews on the App Store or become a five-star rated application, which is like something everyone can rally around. And then one of the key results under the hood might be uh, increased stability from 98% to 99.9%. So that's the measurable thing. That's injecting measurability into the, the goal that everybody shares and that maybe the CEO gets an email from someone that when they're they're mad that the app broke. Mm. So, but what yeah. about the sneaky things like you know supposing that it takes four months for a new engineer to become productive or for that feature to be developed because it's so complicated and you have to plummet so many places? How do we prioritize that? Oh, that's really hard. I think the best big companies I've seen will have some kind of. I think Airbnb has a team called Developer Happiness, and mm. their job is just to purely to to make the engineering team more efficient and onboard people quicker. And I'm not going to get that exactly right, but that's their job, that's their objective, and so maybe they're measured on that there. But obviously, not every company has the latitude and budget to hire well, a Developer we Happiness team. We can all team. internalize the idea of Developer Happiness. Be your own Developer Happiness it, expert. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I guess if you are prioritizing Developer Happiness. 
how can you then justify that you're going to be spending two, five, ten hours a week of your time and not building things out of that? That's a, that's the other question yeah, as well. But. Because you're making everyone else more productive. Yes. Yeah. So if you can measure that, that would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I really do think that looking for ways to measure things is kind of a next frontier in engineering management. I mean, I think of this every time the subject of budgets comes up. Mm. You know, they can spend infinite dollars into the AWS budget, but they can't spend like, you know, more than 20 bucks a month on anything else. And, and <laughs> let alone like factoring and hiring, you know, if they have yes. to hire five people to run an observability team instead of like pay a fraction of that amount. But we're not good at measuring that. One of the fascinating things was I recently, in the past couple of months, gave a talk about how to build systems that are humane to run. And I was able to hire a graphic artist to do it, which was phenomenal, but I never would have been able to do that because the previous company I was at didn't trust me with the autonomy to, yes, you can hire someone to help you with this, right? Yeah. and so random. That comes back to the emotional side of things as well. If you can present this in a way that is compelling, it's going to convince people. So yeah, there's the measurability and then there's you need to feel it in your gut. They say that in order to love your work, right? What do you need? You need autonomy, you need mastery, you need impact. And I feel like so much of the modern corporation is bent at dehumanizing you, Mm. you know, and making you, you know, part of a system, a cog. And we manage to be pretty happy throughout our days, la la la, because we can mostly forget about that. But it's little things like this that just remind you. So speaking of autonomy, how do you see teams kind of choosing which tools they adopt versus using a centralized tool provided by their company? Like, how do you look at teams and advise them kind of, you know, what should I pick? How should I establish safeguards? Yeah, we are the kind of company that definitely gets uh, mostly adopted from the bottoms up. And I think that you're talking about scaling giving a shit earlier. You have these champions that give a shit way above the, the, the average in the company. And so they tend to drag everyone else up. I love finding those people. I love finding the champions. And sometimes the champions understand business value and understand how software is bought. A lot of the time they don't know how to do that. And so I think that the ideal person as someone who makes software that's mostly targeted towards software developers, the ideal champion is someone who has bought software at their company before, can help us prove the business value, but also is going to kick the tires and run this thing themselves and set up the first part of it. By the nature of what we're building at least as well, you roll out something like Bugsnag on an application-per-application basis. So you'll start on Android, then you go to iOS, then you go to the web, then you go to the backend. So getting a top-down sell is something that we've definitely done, but you tell a different story. It's a very different story you're telling. One of them is, I'm going to help you do a better job today, and the other one is more of the high-level metrics side of things. We talk a lot about breaking down silos in tech, but I often feel like tools kind of build silos Mm. at their edges. Right, The edge of your tool creates a silo. You no longer speak the language of everyone around Around you, how do we use these tools for good, not for evil? How do we not just add one more problem? You know, now you have five problems. You know? Right. There's some tools out there that are so complex to understand, and the learning curve is so high. And I think that, especially in the developer tool space, a lot of developer tools are made by software developers. So I'm a I've, sad but true. It's it is. It's so I'm a I'm a software engineer by trade. I don't get to code much anymore. But there's a lot of software developers who will think. Okay, I need to make every piece of data available and I need to have everything filterable and it needs to be super, it needs to do everything on one screen. And so if you can productize things, if you can say, this is designed to do this one thing. I like, I mentioned stability scores a lot, but that's not exactly a complicated mathematical concept. It's like, what percentage of user sessions were crash free? Right, that's it. It's just two pieces of data in that math. 
but presenting that in a way that you can all rally around it and productizing it. Mm, that gets to the subject that's near and dear to my heart, which is a service level objective, right? Like what right. you're describing is a service level objective, but yes. instead of for a web service, you're looking at a application. That's right. SLAs, SLOs are, I think, very simple to understand. The math under the hood shouldn't be that complicated. It should be, again, we're talking about common languages a little bit, like common language between... Oh man, I disagree. These are infinitely complicated. It's like a like a fucking fractal. <laughs> well, I, I wish they weren't because I remember New Relic in the APM space, right? They had this thing called AppDex and I think they still have it. And the idea is it's a score that's generated. And maybe it's just me and my cynical British developer friends mostly, but... I don't trust numbers where I can't understand how the number was calculated under the hood as a software engineer. And so I saw this AppDex number and I'm like, oh, I wish I could get everyone to look at this number, but I just didn't understand how it was made up and didn't believe it. And again, it was probably only two or three inputs in there under the hood. But yeah, it needs to be simple enough that you can explain it in a quick sentence. Well, and the other thing, like, it's the appropriate amount of reliability. Like, mm. we're not going for infinite reliability right. because that lies the way to madness. Well, I did a talk about this and I did a blog post about this really recently. We got a post that was on top of Hacker News that was why you should not fix every bug. And I don't think that's a controversial statement to make. People who want to fix every bug aren't the sort of people who want to get into using a, a bug snag or a honeycomb. It doesn't make sense to them. So we started, the reason we built stability score in the first place was to say, well, how many nines of stability are you going after? It's a concept that people mm -hmm. understand. And so, yeah, SLAs, SLOs, you're going to do it in orders of magnitude, you're going to pick the numbers there. So, yeah, it simplifies it down, but maybe under the hood the math is complicated, but the concept should be simple for it to be, I think, relied upon by the author. Yeah, I agree. Definitely. And it's something that you can use as a translation layer between management and engineers, too. Absolutely. Right? It's a thing you can all agree upon. Yeah, I have an interesting anecdote about that one. We had um, one of our customers is, is Hotel Tonight. And when we were talking to them for a case study, they were explaining how they use the concept of stability score to genuinely figure out whether they should be building features or fixing bugs. Mm, and that so, sounds a lot like the S3 error budget in the SLO. Exactly. In fact, in fact, a lot of this stuff isn't in the SRE book, right? It's the same kind of concept, right? It's don't fix every bug, know what number you're going after, and use that as a powerful tool to make business decisions. Yeah. That's obviously what we intend, but it was great to see that in use. And in fact, the fact that they were below their stability score target at one point actually came up internally. I think it was in an exec meeting or a board meeting where they had to explain, hey, we're not going to ship this feature on time because we need to get the stability under control. And so, yeah, as a common language in that part of the chart in the exec meetings, that's what we're going after. I, again, as a former developer who's worked on building these things on that side of the, the table, now I'm on the side where I'm a pain in the ass to everyone saying, hey, when's this going to ship? And they can tell me. There seems to be this persistent myth that many engineering leaders believe, which is that they can find these cycles to work on reliability and, and everything just in the couch cushion somewhere. You know, you can do it in your spare time, yeah. right? You squeeze it in between that feature work, which, spoiler alert, does not work. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Either it's not going to happen, or the person who's doing it is do doing it, so it evening shoddily. and weekends and then burns out. Yep. Uh, it's just it's never it's never a great thing to do. It has to be a first level priority, and it's the job of the engineering manager is to do battle for their people when they need to in order to get them that time and space to fix things. You know what's interesting as well that, that this seems obvious, I think, to us. But when I started my career, and even before I started my career, software quality and the concept of of measuring this 
was already a thing. It was already a very important thing. It's just back in the day, it was all static analysis. And, yeah, and I remember those days. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so now it went out of being cool because everyone moved to scripting languages and everyone came back to compiled languages and strictly typed languages There's again. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> it's the same. We all care about, if we're building a product, hopefully we care about the same things. But yeah, it's, it's not we're something... we're getting better. We're getting better and better at figuring out how to measure... Like, I think that the shift from, you know, traditional metrics on the back end to the event-oriented way that we gather, it's better because it better maps to the actual experience of the users as they're traversing your code. Right? Yeah, yeah. We're not doing this because it's super fun and cool. It's because we realized that when you're just measuring what's happening on the back end, you're missing out on a lot of context and yeah. a lot of experience can just like go through the cracks. I know a lot of people who use like uh, tools like Splunk and they've got like terabytes and terabytes of data of in Splunk. Junk data. And yeah, no one's looking at nobody. it. Yeah. No one's looking at this data. It's just garbage. Write once, read never. Yeah, exactly. I, I, Why I are you paying to index all of that, right? It drives me crazy. A lot of our customers will, will be using Splunk. It's a safety and blanket. That's ex- all it is. That's exactly what it is. and It's, it's not useful for debugging in any way, meaningful way of the term. Exactly. You have, you can, really, I think there's a split happening right now. You've got the product analytics team who are measuring the KPIs and success of the product, and then you have the observability teams that are measuring the health of the product experience. And so I feel like there's a natural divergence. I feel there. like I, I see kind of almost the same thing. What I've seen is like the traditional op people looking at the health of the service, which is all you're ever going to get with aggregates, right? All you're ever going to get is these averages. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the people who are trying to understand the health of the of the experience for the yeah. user, which is where I would say the observability folks are coming in. Yeah. I think of it as monitoring versus observability. Interesting. But I, I feel like we're both describing the same elephant. I think it is. <laughs> I think I think it's 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 naturally evolving. It's not just yeah. shove everything in a big pile of data. Yeah. It's now it's back to ownership again. It's like who owns what? I own the experience, yeah. I own this. We launched something last year which was the feature flag analytics. So you can as a release manager or a product manager, you can say use a stability score or error data yeah. to say, is this feature healthy? Yeah. So it kind of ties them back together. Because as an engineer, again, you have to, we have to give them the tools so they can own their stuff from end to end. If we're yep. just giving them quote-unquote ownership and like, hey, congratulations, you don't own this, they're just kind of like, uh... Okay, how? What does that mean? How do we know if I succeed or not? Yeah, you know, yeah. like you have you have to give them a set of tools and a standard. Like this is what it means. This is yeah. how you know when you have successfully owned it. And yeah, you should. Done you well. should probably, hopefully, good product teams are, are writing that down before they even write a design spec or a oh, line of definitely. code. Definitely, every but, single one. <laughs> or in reality, probably chasing right, it down. Right, we talk later a on. lot about observability-driven development. Right, how am I going to know? where it's working, where it's not working, and the only way to do that is to start it from the beginning, or at least yeah. the most pain-free way of doing it. Yeah. You can and kind of piggyback things on later, but it's not the same. Yeah, I mean, like ideally, like it goes back to that whole autonomy and you know having the ability to be creative at your job. Like The product owner's job is not to tell engineers how to implement things. There is a vast amount of creativity and control mm-hmm. and interesting stuff to be done there. Like The API layer between product engineering should be you know fairly porous and and it should be driven by what is reasonable to build. Am I building what I thought I said I was building? Is it is what I shipped, what I think I shipped? And did it actually fit the need that the product manager had? Yeah, and so there might be shared OKRs or objectives or goals between product and engineering, but yeah, you should have your own. You should be able to measure things you care about. But hopefully the ones that impact customer experience should be shared, I think. And that's the ones giving, that bubble back giving, up. I think that there's no debate anymore about that this builds better experiences for users, right? But it also has to involve trust because mm. when you're giving someone ownership, 
that means you don't have it anymore. Yeah. You're you're giving over that that point of pride to them, and then yeah, you know, it's giving away your Legos. It is it's giving <laughs> away your Legos, and then and then you have to trust but verify, you know, so that they get to exercise that spark of creativity and, and creative energy. Well, it's interesting. You, you, measuring quality of software via observability or something like stability measurements. Also, the way I like to think about this is if you are using a tool like this and you can see you are causing one particular type of problem on a regular basis. And if you take pride in your work, you can get better at your job based on this kind of information. Every engineer that I have ever worked with that I have liked working with, which is most of them, you know, has had that fundamental pride, you know. And and when you see this these bad outcomes where teams don't have the ability to see what is hurting them, or when you have this fundamental uh, mismatch where the pain is not being felt by the people who are empowered to fix the thing, you know, Mm. like the traditional DevOps split created all of these terrible feedback mechanisms where the developers are not getting the pain of the bad things that they put out there and the people who are getting the pain aren't empowered to fix them, you know? And it's just terrible. Yeah, you need that autonomy and accountability together. When you have just one, not the other, you become very cynical Mm -hmm. and depressed. (laughs) I get it, it makes sense. I'm starting to see an interesting thing happen though, which is that people are even starting to have some kind of aggregate metrics, but they're not necessarily getting a view of kind of the pain that individual customers are experiencing Mm. anymore, that we've scaled up so far, we've lost sight of that. And I think that's where observability really matters, is can you actually identify which specific users are having pain? 100%. And, and uh, we definitely share a, a product direction on that. In Bugsnag, one of the things that has continually been exciting to demo to big accounts is the fact that we can say, look, here's your stability score, but here's the crashes that are impacting paying customers. Here's the crashes that are impacting customers during their trial or onboarding process, oh, like yes. segmenting that whole that whole stack down. It reminds me of that famous quote, which was like, you know, one death is a tragedy and a million is a statistic. Yeah. <laughs> but like the way to actually be emotionally engaged in your work is to make a difference for individual people. Well, it's the craziest thing that we saw from Bugsnag after we launched that feature was, you know, we've always, like I said, we've been bottoms up. Engineers tend to buy in Bugsnag. But we started seeing customer success reps using the product, mm-hmm. and so they're account managers. So they're, they're looking. This dashboard is not built for them right now. We're working on making it more accessible to those but kind of teams. Everybody can do a better job at their job if yep. they have more access to data. Exactly. Or, or if you're doing success teams and account managers do like quarterly business reviews, they'll go into these big accounts and they'll say, "We're going to check in on the health of viewers as a, as a customer." Yeah. And rather than just asking questions right. and saying, "How are you doing?" Come do some research exactly. and show that you actually see. Hey, we found care. this bug. We proactively fixed it within this yeah. amount of time, that is just wow factor for those customers and those accounts. Yeah. Do you think the technical debt is getting, that the mass of it is getting larger or smaller? The amount of technical debt we're creating, I think, is getting bigger. I think that I would like the world to make technical debt in an informed way. So I think it's okay to build things quickly. I mean, it's, it's kind of almost like the agile methodology, right? Build yeah, but something Liz isn't quickly. isn't asking and... what you want to have happen. <laughs> what's, what's in reality going to happen is a different story, I guess. But no, genuinely, I think that people are making more technical debt, and I think that given that, I think that navigating that world is going to become more and more important. But I agree, but I also think that we've gotten, as an industry, we are starting to get a handle on the difference between good debt and bad debt. Like yes. not all debt debt is bad. That's right. The debt that you take out to buy a mortgage or you know to put yourself through college, that is good debt, you know, and there's good debt that helps your business succeed. Yep. It's the same as complexity. There's essential complexity and an essential complexity, right? And some complexity or technical debt has a higher interest rate than other technical debt. Oh, I love that analogy. That's perfect. 
I guess it kind of comes to the end. If you can measure the emotional and mathematical components of that, uh, it's okay. You should be able to create that. I feel like we just closed on on the most interesting thing that we said all day. (laughs) But thank you. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me. It was really fun. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. If you're interested in being a guest on a future show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us on Twitter at OllieCast. That's O-1-1-Y-Cast. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit HeavyBit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tool companies and other industry leaders. Hope to see you next time.